Thank you so much for joining The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I am your host, Sharon Feckety, the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I hope you will go on Amazon and purchase the book or download it on Audible and listen to the book so you can get some more insight as to why I decided to start this podcast show a few years ago and continue the conversation. You're going to hear from professionals. You're going to hear from people with lived experience, those that struggle with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. Uh, You're going to listen to people that have recovered. Uh, You're going to hear resources about how you can navigate through this broken road to mental health and life in a business. And you will certainly be hearing me talk about the importance of having this discussion in business today. That is what I speak about at conferences, and I hope that you will take it seriously. We need to speak more about mental health in the workplace. So thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Please be sure to tell somebody you know that might be struggling to subscribe, to listen, to watch and share it with others. You are not alone on this broken road to mental health. What's happening, everybody? It's me, Sharon Feckety, and uh, we're going to have a great convo today with my new friend, Dave Shamzad, coming in from, you know, cool place to live, Cali. Welcome to the show, Dave. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So uh, Dave is, you know, an entrepreneur like myself, an author like myself, in recovery like myself, don't Mm -hmm. have bipolar, but suffered greatly from depression. So Mm -hmm. we're, you know, we're navigating this road together. Um, Dave is uh, getting ready to release a book that I can't wait to read. And we're going to have a little conversation about this journey. So Dave, why don't you Give us a little background as to who Dave was and is today. Thanks so much for having me again. And um, let me start that answer. I'm going to start in a white room. And um, I woke up in a white room in a psychiatric hospital um, when I was about 23, 24. um, And... I didn't know if I was dreaming. I didn't know, quite understood how I got there, Uh, but I spent the next two weeks there um, like a guinea pig, getting mood stabilizers and antipsychotics and antidepressants of all different varieties, shapes and sizes put through me every day. Um, I was diagnosed bipolar uh, when I was there Um, and I left two weeks later Um, and Leading up to that, I, when I was in college, I started to, I just feel a little different. Um, I just started to get kind of inexplicably sad. Mm. And I started to find myself having these weird periods of time where I just couldn't really talk to anybody or get out of bed without really, really struggling. And then I'd have periods of time where I felt high without smoking weed or having a drink, just high on my own and didn't really need to sleep. Um, I drank a lot. I drank a ton to kind of deal with the dark periods of time. And when you're feeling high and you drink on top of that, it makes it even more exciting. And that's how I coped. And I didn't really, I thought maybe something was off about me, but I didn't really put two and two together. Um, And then as I got a little bit older, those episodes started getting severe Mm -hmm. and they started being, 
okay, having a conversation was hard. Now brushing my teeth seems impossible. Small tasks just seemed, this conversation with you right now would feel like I was in front of 100,000 people, that much anxiety. Um, and similarly, when I was feeling euphoric, it was, I could go for two weeks with minimal sleep, hardly any food, um, running, talking, shopping, drinking, everything nonstop. Mm. Um, and then that went on and that went on. And I, I, I worked at, of all the places that worked this, my episodes worked very well. Um, I worked with at-risk kids at a residential facility. So I was a social worker. Um, and what did they need? They needed somebody who could stay up all night in the middle of the night and chasing kids who were running away or um, violent. Um, and all of a sudden, like my kind of weird freakish energy level worked for them. Mm. Um, and then it all came crashing down. And I had a day, um, I had a day where I was flying as high as I can remember. And I was in like pretty good shape, but not like I did triathlons or anything. And I had this idea that I could go for a 50 mile bike ride. And then after that, I could run a half marathon. And mm -hmm. I don't know why that was the distance, but I just had it in my head that I could spend my off day doing that. Nice. Uh, and, and I did. And it was like, I could not deplete the battery. There was just this unlimited amount of energy. And when I finally got back from that run for the first time in two weeks, I felt tired. Mm. And I suddenly was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go to bed at like six o'clock. And next morning I woke up with never before when I had felt down, had I felt this much clarity that it would be better to be dead than to feel that scared and that much despair that I felt in that moment. And I was convinced, see, when you're having an episode, you really think that it's not gonna stop. And even though you've had them before and they go on for a week and you pull out of it, you, you never believe that that's gonna happen. And I believed in that moment that I would be better off dead. Um, and the noise inside my head was screaming or shrieking. And it was, I can still remember it. And it was like 17 years ago. And wow. thinking about that day, like gives me chills. And I wound up um, within a few hours um, out in the woods. Um, in, at the facility I worked at um, and I had a knife and I took my knife out and I was on my knees and I felt that like the only way that I would feel better is if like the pain left my body in a stream of blood. That's the only thing that made sense to me. Mm. And I pressed down and I watched a little blood come out and I remember thinking that skin is like a lot tougher mm. than you think it's gonna be. It's like a little more leathery than it is just fragile. Um, and that was the last thought I remember. And then the counselor that worked there, because we work with at-risk kids, so there was a counselor there. Um, he, out of nowhere, came up and probably saved my life and tackled me from behind. And uh, I passed out, like, in his arms, wrapped around me. And I woke up in that white room. Um, and then the next seven years, I did not embrace treatment. I did not want to tell it. I didn't tell anybody. Like okay, so let's let's stop for a second. So 
you here you are you are at a treatment facility there to help kids and you probably need more help than most of them that are there so oh. so thank goodness you know there's there's always some little angel looking out for us uh i don't know we have like 20 lives alcoholics drug addicts people that struggle you know we get we get a lot of chances so you, you have this angel come along and and help you out and now i assume that everybody is like Dave, we got to get you some help and you're adamant about not needing it. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Um, I somehow, I tried desperately to keep it a secret and mm -hmm. I, I told everybody that I had got the flu, you know, and people other than the counselor and my direct supervisor, um, uh, everybody believed in, you know, like no reason not to be because they were used to me like operating super high functioning. They didn't know it was because I was really um, manic. When they saw me high functioning, I was manic. Mm -hmm. um, and I kept it a secret and I wanted to bury it. I took my pills. Like I had a whole host of pills I took when I left and I figured this was my plan. I'm going to take my pills and then I'm not going to tell anybody about being diagnosed bipolar um, I can tell my parents, I can tell my friends. Um, I'm going to tell only um, the, my girlfriend who had, who had been watching this from up close and knew what was going on. And then um, started self-medicating for the next seven or eight years. Mm. That was, that was, that was the way I coped with everything. When I was feeling down, I would drink. And when I was feeling up, I would drink and do drugs and, it got to a point of um, you, you, you can't mix those medications with alcohol, you know, because it's like it's dribbling two balls at the same time. Like you, you, you can't you can't treat mental illness when you're affecting your mental health with drugs and alcohol. And not to mention, like swirling them together with some pretty hardcore medication. Um, so like when I was in college, I was kind of like a silly happy drunk, but when I was older and I was an alcoholic, I was not. Um, whether it was my mental illness or whether it was the medication, um, like when I blacked out, I, was, I, I blacked out really quickly and I wasn't, I wasn't friendly, I was violent, I was enraged, I felt a lot of pain and that came out. Um, in like seven years, I, I, I went to jail three times. Um, I went to, um, <laughs> certainly got, got a court record. Um, and it wasn't until the last night I drank, um, I woke up in the morning and I had blood all over me. And it was like on my clothes and it was on my, my face. And my girlfriend had like, she had stayed with me through all this and tried so hard to help me. and. Um, but at this point she had checked out, you know, so I woke up by myself and I was trying to find my keys and they had blood all over them. And I'm like, did I drive? Like, where's my car? Like what's going on? And you know what I'm talking about? Gary. Yeah. And so I like, wake go up from the blackout is very scary. It, it's super scary. And like, but my recollection, you know, over the years is like, there's always like a sight or a sound or a smell. There's like a couple of little data points that you can just latch onto to try to inventory everything that happened, you know? And this was different. There wasn't anything. I remember having a cigarette outside of a bar 
and then nothing. A page just completely torn out. And it, I've never felt more detached from like 12 hours of life. And I had mm. zero clue. I didn't even remember, like I got beat up but I didn't remember that at all. Um, and I was wandering around and I, I found my car and it wasn't the first time I drove drunk at all, but it was the first time where I couldn't remember anything. And I found there was like blood in the car. It was on the door handle. And I, and I thought, I don't know. I thought maybe I, I hit and run or something. I had no idea. So I'm like, I'm on the internet and I'm looking for, I'm on the SFPD website to see if there was a hit and run reported. I had really no clue. Um, and I recognized in that moment, I'm going to die. And it's either going to be on a night like last night or it's going to be slowly withering away. And like you said in the beginning, like your luck vacates sooner or later. You don't just, you don't live that long going at that rate. And you either crash into a brick wall or you just wither like a, like a flower in the sun and just kind of, and you don't survive it. Um, yeah. And I, I um, my girlfriend, like she was, she left and she just said, you know, I can't, I can't watch this anymore. It's too hard. Um, but she was willing to like keep helping me. And she helped me find um, a chemical dependency recovery program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I checked in and I met a counselor and she, she understood what I went through and she had also struggled with drug and alcohol addiction. And she made me understand like, this is about your survival. You're going to die mm-hmm. and you need to give yourself, you need to give yourself a week and you need no alcohol in your body for a week. And then let's, and then let's, let's, let's take inventory at that time. And that got me to a week. And then I got into, and I got myself another week. Um, and then all of a sudden I was at a month and um, the, the action step that I took at that point changed my life mm-hmm. and is why I'm here now. I, uh, I sent an email to everybody I knew, like my friends, family, and I told them everything. And I told them that I was struggling with my mental health and a clear addiction to drugs and alcohol. And I just said, I need everyone to know, and I need you to help me in any way you can. And I don't want to let myself down and I don't want to let you down. And if you just know that, I, you know, that I need to go to the movies and, and tag along, um, keep me far away from any bar and encourage me, um, go for a walk, go for, <laughs> go for a stroll with me. Mm-hmm. And the, the love and support I got back was, you know, it was a mess. And it was people telling me that like, yeah, they thought I was gone and that they would do whatever they could. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like, it's easy to let yourself down, right? Like you can, when you're, when you're an addict, you can promise yourself any morning, like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to drink again tonight. And then you let yourself down again and again. But by making that promise to like a lot of people, um, it kind of changed the game for me. And I want to stop there and see what, see what, see what questions you might have. But that began the next chapter of my life, which got me to a point of, Um, I'm married and I have a family and I have a really successful business. I'm so excited to tell you about our sponsor, Valley Bank. To know that we have a bank that thinks so much about mental health in the workplace has made me so proud. Valley Bank is my bank for business and has been since the day I opened 10 years ago. When I was introduced to them, I was told that I was going to really like everybody that worked for the bank. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns out they were right. 
I like everybody that works there. They are good people, nice people, and they care about others. They care about the community. But the thing I am most proud of is how they are welcoming the conversation about mental health in the workplace into their bank and willing to take that risk and talk about it in our community. Valley Bank is definitely forging the way in business to open up this conversation. If it wasn't for my father's employee assistance program back in the day, 28 years ago, I would not be on this podcast today. It just goes to show when you offer these resources to your company and to your team, miracles can happen. I am one of them. So Valley Bank not only offers an employee assistance program to their staff and their team members, but they also send out these great vitality monthly communications, bi-weekly wellness resources, and they're willing to sponsor a podcast that is about mental health in life and in business. So if you have not connected with Valley Bank, I highly recommend you do. Well, if you've been listening or watching the show for a while, you know that I love nothing more than recommending a great book a great podcast show, a great resource. And this book, Keep Kicking, Frisco, Keep Kicking, is such a great book and I highly, highly recommend it. So Dr. Torres in his mid-20s in his second year of med school was being rushed to the hospital, rushed to the ER. They didn't know what was going on with him. It turns out he was suffering from panic attacks and anxiety. But you know, the doctors, his own colleagues didn't know what to do with him. And Dr. Torres was forced to treat himself. So doctors always take a medical history and Dr. Torres's self-assessment was no different. And keep kicking Frisco, Torres describes what wacky journey of self-discovery can be like and sheds light on how the accumulated eccentricities of our upbringings shape the person we grow up to be. Mm-hmm. Panic attacks and all, everybody. So apart from this incredible family history story, the book aims to demonstrate how the lives of others intersect with our own and shape who we become. For those who suffer from anxiety, depression, and fear, Dr. Torres's story absolutely offers hope for the future and a blueprint of how to overcome the panic we sometimes face in our own lives. So check out the show notes, click on the link, get the book. You won't regret it keep kicking. Yeah. So let me, let me hear about that. So it's great. You know, I, I think that we're one of few that have support and love and family that doesn't give up. Right. You know, my parents live 1.5 miles away from me still to this day. I'm happily married. I have a beautiful stepson. I don't think that happens to everybody. I think sometimes we, we burn through all of our relationships. So if there's love around you, it's certainly a great segue into uh, getting the help that we need. So what did your recovery look like? Did you, some people join 12-step programs, some people just don't don't drink anymore. Some, you know, there's so many different resources today. So yeah. what was it for you? What helped you stay uh, sober and then also, mm-hmm. you know, deal with your, your dual addiction, your mm-hmm. dual diagnosis, not yes. your dual addiction. <laughs> Maybe dual addiction. Um, Maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, great question. And I think my path was definitely, um, yes, I think it was a little unique. I, um, I actually, so I, the chemical dependency recovery program lasted for, um, 
I think it was three months. So that was a everyday resource that I could go check in. I had a weekly meeting with the counselor, but then there was, there was meetings every day. Um, so I stayed pretty involved, but then you time out of that. Mm. Um, I went to AA for um, two meetings. Mm-hmm. And I think if I had more maturity at the time, I would have stayed longer. But um, I, I, I'll be honest, I got scared. And um, the thing that scared me when I stepped in um, to that first meeting, I was relatively young in the crowd, right? And um, I looked around and I, and I had this thought. I was 21, Dave. I'm with you. Right. And I had this thought. I'm like, I, I don't want to die here. <laughs> yes. I don't want to still be talking about this in 20 years. I really thought like, I can just bury this. Like I, like I buried bipolar. I can just bury this and make it, it's in the rear view mirror and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. And th- there, I didn't have the maturity to kind of realize that, that you're always an addict. Um, but fortunately, like I did have a way of, of, of getting through it and, to me, I always thought of it like training. Um, I was on a crew team growing up and in college, and I always sort of had a connection with sports and endurance sports in particular. And I kind of had an understanding of, I can withstand pain, right? And so there's the expression white knuckling, and that's just gripping something as hard as you can, um, even if there's a, a better way to do it. And I white knuckled through recovery, and I just yeah. fought through the urge to drink every single day. Um, and I used the people around me, like my girlfriend came back, she didn't leave and got a pestered her every night to watch him. Can we stay up and watch a movie? You know, uh-huh. she's like, we just watched a movie. Like, uh-huh. I know, but I'll stay up and watch another movie. Um, so it was the people around me and then just a pretty gritty determination that I could do it. Awesome. It's great. And you know, it's not for everybody. There was, I mean, that's 28 years ago for me when I walked in and there was no internet then, you know, so there, everything is, is different today and there's different resources and, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody gets sober through a 12 step recovery. It's different for everybody. That's why I like to have this conversation. That's why this show is called the broken road to mental health. Mm-hmm. It's, everybody's got a separate road and a separate path. So yeah. hear about the good stuff. So now you are a successful business owner and you're knee deep in, in real estate about to publish a book. So what does life look like today? I, I love where I am. Um, my life began 11 years ago when I sought treatment and stopped drinking. I really did. The, the, I had a job at the time. Like I'd been, I scraped, at one point I was working four jobs. I needed money, but I couldn't really focus enough to excel on anything. I was always hungover, uh, but I had started in real estate and scrapped together a couple of clients. And um, so the first thing I did was like, I got to focus on work, right? Like I got to see if this is a career for me, like if I need to do something else. Um, and all of a sudden, like, it was like the handcuffs came off, you know, and I didn't, e- I didn't even realize it. The, the best trick that we play on ourselves when we're addicted is thinking that it's not impacting us. We really convince ourselves, we come into work and you're like, oh, I made it on time. It's not affecting me. But you don't have half of your resources and like your, your ability. And all of a sudden the handcuffs came off and I was good and I was smart and I was a good salesperson and I was a good, uh, 
I, I was I was a worker. I could get into a project and really stick with it. Um, and it helped me recover too. So I'm like, I got something to focus on. And it started to take off. Um, and all of a sudden I've got, I've got a few more clients and I have this idea. It was in the middle of the recession actually. And so bit, like real estate was kind of slow in general. And I had this idea. Part of it was just changing the scenery. And that's the, it was the same office that I'd come into, you know, with, with hung over with a black eye behind my sunglasses. And it was just, there was a lot of reminders. And when you get sober, like all the reminders of things, you know, uh, sometimes they don't help. And I was like, let me get a fresh start. And I decided it's as good a time as any to start a business because everybody's struggling and maybe I'll get some new clients who are looking for a new agent, a new broker, whatever. Um, so I got a tiny little office and I had like two clients and they stuck with me and I just busted my butt for them. I shared my tiny office with a subletter just to help cover the rent. And then I had four clients and then I had eight and, I, and then I got an assistant and all now I've got a small team. And um, that was 11 years. Uh, that was about 10 years ago. And now I've got about 45 people and we, uh, we manage about 2,500 office residential uh, and retail uh, spaces. And we own about 10% of those. Um, and things are good. And my, my, within two years of getting sober, I was married. That same woman that had stuck with me is like, I, and I say this literally, not figuratively. Like I, I would not be here if it wasn't for her. I would not Yay, be. To the I don't mean, yeah. I don't mean here in this conversation. I mean here. Physically um, and spiritually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I, I'd, have, I'd have given up entirely. I was ready to give up. And um, her being there and taking me to the chemical dependency recovery program that first day um, and getting me through the door, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that triggered everything. And so um, all of a sudden without same thing, there was no handcuffs on my ability to emotionally connect with someone. And so like, cause when you're an addict and you're in a relationship, you're actually in two relationships right? and like, you're a lot more loyal to the drink or the drug. And I used to be, I would be at dinner with her thinking like, she's talking, but I'm only thinking about when I can get another drink. When is it appropriate for me to get another drink? Um, I, I, I'd have to, I, I'd have a flask with me when we go out so that I could go to the bathroom and drink a little faster than, than everybody well, the else. good old days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I bet she's happy. Uh, yeah. I mean, we have a great life and like, I got within a, within a year and a half, two years, we had gotten married. Um, and then we got our own, we got a place, uh, got a little house together, uh, that we rented Then we bought a house as my career took off. Um, and then I found out more about her and I realized I have like not gotten to know you as much as I could have because I've been so focused on myself and uh, it turns out she wanted to start a business too. And she always had this dream of, have, of opening a cafe and had this beautiful vision for one. And so we made that happen and she opened a cafe like six or seven, uh, about six years ago. Um, and now we're both living this entrepreneurial life that we had a vision for ourselves. Um, and last year, um, in July, we had a kid. Yay. Yeah. And his name's Reza and he's Aww. adorable. And every day I see him, I'm just like, I'm just so lucky that, um, 
I pulled the trigger on taking care of my mental health and uh, recovering from what was a really nasty uh, addiction that was drowning me. Yeah. So let me, it's so great. Congratulations. It's wonderful. We do recover. You know, there is hope for anybody out there that's listening or watching that might be struggling today. You know, there, there is hope. We, we can recover. We just usually have to piss off a few people and screw up our entire lives first, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then the gratitude that we ultimately have for the little things are, are really magnified. So it's really wonderful. Um, what about this book? So, you know, as we come to a close, why did you make the decision? I made a decision in 2019 to tell everybody, nobody in business knew that I was sober. Nobody mm-hmm. knew that I tried to kill myself when I was a young adult. Um, I know why I made the decision. So I'm curious as to why you decided to to write this book and put it out into the world. Yeah, Um it's super scary. It's super scary to, um, to make this struggle known. I, it, I'm comfortable now with people thinking that my life kind of exists around my real estate profession and my family. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm at my, my happiest when I know I've helped someone. That's why I got into social work in the beginning. And that's always been a part of me. And I, I know that if I can go help me from 20 years ago if I can find that person um, and help them even if it's one person or two it's it's worth it to me to share the whole story and and, and bear everything um, because it's it's really hard and, and mental illness is so real and it's very stigmatized um, in certain communities in particular like it's not easy to talk about and it's, and it's, there's no open, there's not enough open dialogue about it. Uh, mental health and addiction. People carry, people carry addictions through their whole life. And we, we sort of just keep it under wraps. Um, and, you know, something like one in five people struggle with some mental illness, anxiety, depression, uh, OCD. And how much do you talk about it? You know, I don't talk about it with one in five people. And, um, when I realized that someone out there needs help and I might, there's just, even if there's a chance that I'm in a position to do that, I want to. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Well, that's the best way to, uh, you know, write a book. That's, that's why we do it. That's why I did it. I certainly knew I wasn't going to get rich off of Amazon. Um, it was, you know, I'm pretty sure Jeff is getting wealthier by the second. I don't think it's right. me. Just to Jeff's show some, fun. he's doing just fine. Just to let somebody else know that not only can you get your life straightened out, you can get sober, but you can thrive and you can show others that just because you had a period in your life that, you know, you were struggling and still struggling, it, it, it's so okay not to be okay. I mean, I just posted that today. It really is. I don't think that there's anybody out there, especially through what we've all gone through as a globe the last few years and still are going through, that mm-hmm. um, we all haven't felt the effects of of struggle and adversity and loss and grief and depression and sadness. So really great, Dave, especially because, dare I say, you're a man and talking about it. We need more men that are willing to share these stories because the suicide rate for men is a lot higher than women. 
because women tend to have these discussions more. We like to talk things out, Dave, you know that. That's right. Men are more like, let's watch a game instead. <laughs> but we're changing, you know, slowly. So, and this is what it takes. So I'm, I'm really, I'm proud that you're doing this work. Um, entrepreneurs, especially, I think I got a, a DM this morning from a very successful woman that I've known for years in Tampa that reached out and told me that she was struggling and she wanted to have a conversation. And if I never wrote that book, I would never get that message and I would never mm -hmm. have that opportunity to serve, you know? So right. the opportunity to serve is uh, better than, than anything we could have ever imagined. Right. Yeah. And I want to, and just like you've done, I want to remind people what's possible after recovery and after treatment. I think it's easy to get stuck at that spot, but like, our whole lives are still in front of us. There's no limit to what we can do. And at that point of, of getting help and maybe getting sober, um, part of what kept me going and staying sober was feeling success every day and investing myself in a new purpose, whether that's starting a business or um, whatever your cause is, whatever you want to work at, so much is possible. Even if, even if you've struggled for 20 years, life's just getting started. And I, and I, so I want to remind just like you've done, hey, you can still be an entrepreneur. You can be whatever you want, regardless of our past circumstances and maybe even because of our past circumstances and what they've taught us. Yeah, 100 percent. Yes, 100 percent. Yes. And I think that more entrepreneurs and more business, owners, you know, my book is in life and in business. Mm -hmm. My every paragraph of my life is is a, a parallel about how that manifested into my business life today. And mm -hmm. I think that there's so many people that struggle in silence in the right. business world. And to be able to, to speak about it openly in the workplace is very, very key to give mm -hmm. us uh, a safe space to share and, and talk more openly about mental health. So Dave, I appreciate you. I'm so glad you were here with me today. And I look forward to having you back on when the book is out so we can promote it a little bit more. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Dave. Don't forget to check out Valley Berry for all your banking needs. They are supporting mental health in the workplace and beyond. Thank you, Valley. Don't forget to check out Keep Kicking Frisco. Keep kicking. You won't regret it. Link in the show notes. Just keep